Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mike Murphy, the co-director of the USC Center for the Political Future. I hope you're enjoying our Warsaw Conference on Practical Politics, the year of politicking dangerously. Well, if that's not scary enough for you, we're going to enter the world of politics and foreign policy, where a lot is going on in the world. We're going to look at the global challenges for Joe Biden and see where he's doing well and where he might be screwing up. We're going to have a full discussion with a tremendous panel. We're lucky to have everybody. Let me get through the introductions. We have David Kang here. David is the Maria Crutcher Professor in International Relations, Business, and East Asian Languages and Cultures at USC, with appointments in both the School of International Relations and the Marshall School of Business. He's director of the Korean Studies Institute at USC Dornsife and author of numerous books, scholarly articles, and opinion pieces. Marcos, a a great journalist. You might have followed him like I do. Uh, He's had a dual life in the foreign policy world and in journalism. Marcos Kunalakis is the author, publisher, journalist, international relations scholar. He's a visiting fellow at Hoover at the Stanford University. And we are lucky we have California's second gentleman here today. He's married to our Lieutenant Governor, Eleni Kunalakis. So thank you, Marcos, for joining us. Nina Serena Vasin. Did I pronounce that right, Nina? I was terrified. I thought, of course I didn't. What's the it's correct really easy. It's just Srinivasan. Srinivasan. Rathburn. She is a professor of international relations here at USC at Dornsife. Her research and expertise focuses on international security with a focus on multilateral nuclear proliferation and counterproliferation policies. She previously served as a foreign affairs officer for the U.S. State Department on multilateral nuclear proliferation. So we're getting to the wacky world of nuclear weapons and uh, progress we're making or not making in the, in the questions. And finally, my buddy, Corey Shockey, great American patriot, a hero in some of the Trump wrestling within the Republican Party. She leads foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She has had a distinguished career in government, well-known and respected there, working at the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Department of Defense, the National Security Council at the White House. She also served as a key foreign policy advisor for my old boss, John McCain's presidential campaign. So we, we got the dream team here. My job is to ask questions and keep it moving. So number one, and I'll, we'll do this kind of informally. I'll just throw it out and people will start talking. And if it turns into a crazy cable show, I'll try to straighten that out so everybody uh, can have their point made. we got about 15 topic areas we're going to try to go through. So be succinct, but be yourselves. First question, it's got to be Joe Biden. He became the first president in 20 years to end America's long war in Afghanistan. How will history remember Joe Biden's decision to completely withdraw troops? Could his administration have avoided the last-minute catastrophes we all saw on television. Was it done right, done wrong, inevitable, not? What's our scorecard and our insight on the end of American military participation, at least for now, in Afghanistan? And why don't I start with Corey? I think the last three American presidents have wanted to end American participation in the war in Afghanistan. And the problem is nobody, including Joe Biden, could figure out how to do that without Afghanistan collapsing back to Taliban rule. President Biden, to his credit, um, was willing to pay that price to do it. So I don't think President Biden could have um, could have avoided the consequences of Taliban takeover of the country, but he absolutely could have avoided the consequences of panicking America's allies, abandoning America's Afghan partners, in particular those who participated in the war effort on the coalition side. Um, And uh, the um, America's allies who fought alongside us these 20 years in Afghanistan, it's ringing pretty hollow for them that America's back because they tried very hard to persuade President Biden not to do this and not to do this on such a short timeline and couldn't get any traction on their concerns. Okay. Anybody want to join on that? Uh, Disagree? Agree? Opine? 
I would join Corey in that assessment, but I would also say that you know a lot of what remains uh, in our, seared in our minds is that that chaos that occurred at the airport. Now you know we're entering into the political realm, and what will remain in the minds of the electorate, and when it comes to how do we assess Afghanistan, it's not the twenty years, it's not uh, some of these other issues of allies or. Um, or our failure to communicate with them, but it really is those last few days and how people clinging to C-17s were dropping off and re- you know running onto the tarmac. And I'd say that if there were three things that the administration could have planned better for, and there's a whole list of them, but the three that I put on uh, my list are... You know, it would have been important to figure out how to compel or entice the president of Afghanistan to have stayed in the country during its transition. I think his abandonment really uh, just exacerbated things. Secondly, I'd say it's, you know, we know how to control the information domain when we enter into a conflict. Clearly, we didn't know how to control the information domain exiting a conflict. And and I I really uh, fault um, planning in this case to not be able to allow the Taliban's victory and, and their and their rolling over the country to seem inevitable and to have a bandwagoning effect as a result. And then finally, I'd say, I don't know who figured it was a good idea to trust the Turks to control the airport and to manage the airport uh, security situation, but that was clearly a bad idea. They were already double dealing with the Taliban previously, and so uh, that, that final... Uh, thrust really created this this horrific imagery to add to all of the systemic and endemic problems that Corey mentioned. Yeah, it was the beginning of Biden's polling declines, but I guess there never are good optics to American troops rushing for the door. But, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of see it's a good transition to the next question, which is, will there be a power vacuum in Afghanistan after the withdrawal of our forces? My, my political analysis of it is, uh, yeah, it was optically bad, but what would worry me if I were in the White House with Biden is that right now the Taliban has a big red button on their desk to get on the front page of the New York Times anytime they want to by acting up. And Biden, whether he, he ought to or won't, will own that for the next year or so. So any trouble they make, then then his opponents will be say, aha, we left and now it's, you know, terrorist threats are growing, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what do we think? the next year in Afghanistan will look like and, and the kind of power vacuum that'll exist. The Taliban has their own problems with the Islamic State. Let's get out our crystal balls, which are always tricky in these kind of things, and take a look at what we think the next year might bring. I'll throw it open to anybody who wants to get out a rusty... Cr- I'll bring out mine, but it'll be wrong. I think the most important thing that will happen in Afghanistan in the next year is large-scale humanitarian crisis. This is a really serious problem. It's urgent. The United States and other governments are going to have to make the distasteful decision of whether we both legitimate and assist the success of a Taliban government in Afghanistan in order to prevent mass starvation in the country, which is, you know, we're right on the edge of that problem. Our defenses have gotten so much better since September 11th, 2001, that I'm skeptical that even as terrorism uh, gets purchased in Afghanistan, that it will be a major risk for the United States or for allies beyond the region. But I'd be interested in other people's views. I'm going to agree with you. I think that to a degree, you also have the issue of the uh, kind of inevitable instability that you were going to have there. Um, But the question of doing the humanitarian assistance is one that I hope this administration will recognize um, that there is a real need there, because I I honestly agree that I don't think that the terrorism concern is as strong as the humanitarian concern there. And I would only add that if there is a terrorism concern, but it's not for the United States, it's really for India, because if Afghanistan suddenly becomes Becomes a hate Pakistan who uh, really move forward with some of its designs and creating regional tensions, then I think that can be really uh, catastrophic. I apologize. I think there's something wrong with the Zoom connection here, which is odd. Let's turn to the Biden inaugural address. The president promised to rekindle diplomatic relationships with countries and, oh, as he says about domestic policy, build back better. 
How successful has the Biden administration been on this front? And how different is President Biden's foreign policy philosophy from his predecessor? So I think his philosophy is quite different from his immediate predecessor and a return to the general trend of American post-1945 philosophy of um, advancing democracy, working through multilateral institutions, leading cooperation internationally on big problems like climate. So it's clearly a departure from President Trump. I would point out, though, that while European allies heaved an enormous sigh of, sigh of relief to have President Biden in office and feel much more comfortable. America's allies in Asia, many of America's allies in Asia, were supporters of the Trump administration's policies, in particular, the much harder line he was taking on China. But I defer to David on that. Well, I have a very unconventional uh, view, as people often say, but thanks, Corey. It's good to see all of you. Uh, it's too bad uh, uh, Mike's not here. I mean, you know, the, th- the thing about East Asia that the Biden administration is running into, and I think this is presaged by the question, uh, is, is this going to be building back alliances with democracies, which he says half the time, or is he going to be trying to weave some kind of containment coalition against China, which he says the other half of the time, which includes countries like Vietnam and Singapore, which are not necessarily uh, democracies or even allies. And it isn't clear how this is going to work. We see this in the response to the Australia-US submarine thing, Singapore came out, Indonesia, Malaysia all came out very skeptical about it. And I think that the issues are far more, far more complicated than simply countries in Asia are afraid of China and they want the US there. The countries in Asia have to live with China. And what they want is a US that's going to help them do that without making things worse. Um, And right now, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I see a very clear policy personally. I would say that there seems to be more willingness to work with China, at least recently. And, and I, I note um, both the joint statement um, that, that the United States and China made um, in the COP26 um, negotiations, as well as the upcoming um, bilateral meeting. And so I, I am a little bit more hopeful, although that US, UK, Australia um, deal was really poorly done, um, poorly organized. And the idea that you want to have HEU for nuclear submarines in Australia versus LEU, uh, low enriched uranium versus high enriched uranium, also I think is really problematic in that region. So I don't think we've got Mike here. And as I said, I wasn't going to join in on that question. And until he jumps back in, I don't, unless anyone else wants to do this, I do have his questions in front of me. So I figure I may as well just take over unless David or Nina, you've got them there. Ah, we've got Bob. He's going to take over. I'm going to pinch hit, and hopefully Mike will come back at some point. So I'm not caught up with the questions yet. Why don't you ask the next one, Marcos, and then I'll be caught up. As tensions between the United States and China increase, and we just touched on that, particularly as China's economic and political ambitions within the Indo-Pacific region and beyond grow, is there any way the two countries can work together on global issues like climate change? And we just touched on that a bit. Yes, and they are. That's right. The joint communique just came out. It's a start, but it's also uh, an object lesson in how do you separate this, this one complex global commons issue from the many issues that also exist between the two world's largest emitters. And I think this is a, this is a problem that's going to be ongoing. I don't know how you, how you do it, but we're, we're trying to deal with it in the United States as a standalone issue. I just came back from COP26, where my wife was representing the state of California. And speaking of pinch hitting, Bob, she was pinch hitting for the governor. Uh, So uh, what was notable was the United States presence at COP26 in Glasgow and China's absence. And uh, and I think that the that they were able to come up with any communicate, no less a joint communicate. The very end of it is a a very positive proof is in. So. We seem to have a lot of gremlins today that are interfering with what we're doing. But do you all generally sense that what Corey was saying was right, that somehow or other we are going to manage on this common ground issue of climate to find a way to cooperate with China and actually begin to get uh, climate under control? Anybody want to take that, David? 
I would add other things besides the climate thing, which is I think the U.S. and China are beginning to work in that direction, right? But I'm I'm a little leery about hiving off everything else that's going to be, well, that's all too complicated and competitive. And the only thing we can can cooperate on is on climate or some of these global issues. I mean, I think think what I watch in D.C., and forgive me for calling it a blob, but uh, is everybody now is just taking for granted China's rising ambitions and et cetera. What I would like to see is far less attention to a bunch of submarines that aren't going to be here for 20 years, literally, and instead of focus on China's application to join the uh, CT, CPTPP, whatever it's called now, right? The Trans-Pacific Partnership with the new form. I don't think they're going to get in, but it's a sign of China's ambitions for what they expect to have over the next 20 years. They are going in a direction where they expect to be able to join high-quality trade institutions. They have a very clear economic strategy for joining the world in a number of ways. And it's different now than it was even 10 years ago. I mean, we tend to think like, well, China will never do it. In fact, when they started 10 years ago or talking about this in 2013, there was, you know, I was skeptical. There's there's no way China can join. And then they started mumbling about maybe trying to join. And I think we missed this at our own peril. And this is where I think the Biden administration's unwillingness to go back to regular trade pacts and to continue that part of the Trump strategy, I think is directly harming the United States. Oh yeah. And other countries are going in. I'll stop. I talk too much. No, no, no. I just want to jump on and reinforce David's excellent point, which is the biggest mistake Biden is making in foreign policy is expecting that we can get Asian allies and even European allies alongside us with a hard-hitting China policy if we don't have a trade and economic policy that helps them be prosperous absent deep involvement with China. You just can't get from here to there. Excellent. I apologize for my absence. I tweeted against Putin yesterday, and all everything electronic now no longer works. I don't know if there's a connection or not, but I still say the, uh, that he's a stinker. Okay, uh, I assume we're talking about Biden stumbling with the Europeans, Afghanistan, the submarine deal and all that, because I've, I've not had the benefit of hearing. All right, let's talk about China a little more. And I'm going to pivot off Corey's point about if you can't have the European economic interests kind of aligned with the Chinese, it's very hard to get them to play the foreign policy game tough. What is, and I, I heard David talk about, and I think this was true of Afghanistan a little bit, Biden has seemed to have an appetite to kind of do Trump light on a few things on trade and others. What, what should the Biden reset be? Because, I mean, here, here's a guy with declining poll numbers who needs to start making things happen for political success. The Chinese, at least in the Taiwan thing, have been able to start a little bit of a, a tsunami, so to speak, in the American press and everything. So the Chinese issue is getting hotter. We have the Olympics coming up, which is going to be very important to the PRC leadership. What, what moves do you think the White House should be making uh, going forward uh, to manage the relationship and, frankly, all, and manage the domestic policy of looking like maybe a little bit of a stronger leader than he has the Afghan pullout in the stone of the earth? I think the biggest problem the Biden administration has is the gap between what they are claiming they're doing and what everybody's watching them actually do. So they talk about putting human rights at the center of American foreign policy, which is a beautiful thing to do and largely inconsistent with writing off the war in Afghanistan. Um, And they haven't yet explained how they are going to square that with partnering with countries that aren't democracies. And they haven't yet explained how that's going to fit in our broader China policy. So they, they leaned very far forward on, on calling uh, Uyghur, calling China's behavior genocide um, in their dispossession of Uyghur Chinese. And then nothing. And so I think they're really struggling to try and figure out both where do human rights actually fit in priorities when you have to make foreign policy. And second, they still don't know what they mean by a foreign policy for the middle class. Um, It was an easy, cheap talking point that, you know, Wall Street was the beneficiary of globalization. But that's actually not what Americans think. If you look at the uh, Chicago Council on Global Affairs polling, for example, Americans are pro-trade by a pretty wide majority. They believe it makes them more prosperous. 
And so the Biden administration is sort of trapped in Joe Biden's 17 years ago doctrine and can't figure out how to make it work as policy. If I can jump in briefly, I mean, I think I think that's right. And the, the way that I tend to characterize it is, first of all, I don't know anything about domestic politics. But what strikes me as the team he put together, at least on East Asia, is that he doesn't want to have to put any domestic capital on this or political capital. And that he's really focused on domestic. And so we have these very, as, as Corey said, these are very traditional policy elites doing the traditional American views on things other than the ones where he's trying to push this, uh, again, against trade and things like that. So they say all the right things, but I don't think there's a lot of direction there. And I do think that the goal is to simply keep things from getting uh, too out of hand, which is why you see it lurch here and there sometimes on East Asia. They say what they need to say. An example we can talk about later if you want is like North Korea, where they say they're willing to talk, but I don't see anything substantively going on. Uh, so it looks good, again, but I, I don't think this is where his efforts are. And I think that's why it looks a little haphazard, not to be too critical, but it seems, it seems a little haphazard. Well, let's talk about North Korea. Something dear to my heart. Yeah, no, and I know you're a subject expert there. So let me, I'll follow up with you and the others can chime in. But, you know, President Trump had, I'll be kind, I'll call it an unorthodox approach. You know, there was normally a lot of linkage. Without any linkage, they got a summit. I think the North Korean leadership would never have dreamed of having a, quote, win that big. What is the Biden policy going forward? And has there been any forward progress? Or are we sliding backwards? Or has it all been optics and everything is the same? And the North, the North Koreans remain the, uh, the problem they've been. And how are South Korean attitudes evolving? Because they went through the roller coaster ride with the president. Uh, now they've got a new president. What, what's the new policy? What's Joe Biden going to do? The election's in the spring. But anyway. Oh, they it, will. Okay, right. Sorry. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, which is there was a chance with North Korea and Trump to make a little progress. It was going to be a small deal. The Yongbyon nuclear facility for some relaxation, relaxation of sanctions. And somebody went big in Hanoi and then everybody walked away. And that's where we are. And the thing that bothered me at the time was when we were so far down the line towards thinking Yongbyon was going to be uh, dismantled that at the national laboratories at Livermore and Los Alamos, they were asking physicists to consider going for three months because this is not an easy thing. I mean, that is a deeply irradiated, that's an environmental disaster, right? Getting rid of that by itself is a win for the whole region. And then people were saying, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not working anyway. That's what they're building. Fissile, they're using fissile material from Youngbun right now, right? I would have taken that deal. I would have moved the ball forward a little bit. I think one of the issues for most American presidents are that they want the big deal, right? You have to say denuclearization. You know, frankly, I don't think North Korea is going to denuclearize. I would rather us focus on managing the issue. But I think politically, that's incredibly hard to do. And that's where Biden is right now, is the way my short, my short version. Yeah, I've been told by North Korea experts I know that it's impossible for the regime to give up the, the nuclear card because then things really would collapse. It's been the bulwark of their claim to uh, legitimacy. And Nina, I see you kind of head moving here. I think you've got some opinions. So let's hear from you. What's your take on North and South Korea and Joe Biden? how he might navigate forward or what you think his plans might be. So I'm not sure what his plans are. I'm not sure he knows what his plans are. But at the same time, I agree with, with David on this, that, that there's no way North Korea is giving away its nuclear weapons. And there is still possibly some things, if not politically palatable, that we could do, right? I mean, the amount of increased missile development that North Korea is doing, I think, is really destabilizing. Um, and the tests that it did in September and October um, for new missiles, I think, are are really a concern for South Korea, um, as well as um, less so, right, for us. And so I do think that we need to start thinking about alternatives to the old way of thinking about denuclearization as the only path forward with North Korea. I'm going to jump in and reinforce again what... The other two have said, uh, in fact, a few years ago, I wrote a piece called Nuke Deals Are for Suckers. And I wasn't just talking about the Gaddafi regime or, uh, or some of the other ones that we often use uh, with, uh, to talk about giving up weapons of mass destruction. I was really thinking about Ukraine and Belarus. The minute 
that they give up their uh, deterrence forces, they become much more vulnerable to a larger predatory state. And, the, and in the case of Ukraine and Belarus, of course, Russia has, has made good on taking advantage of their lack of nukes. They once had them. I would come up with two more things on the nuke question in North Korea. One is um, that I think we have to remember what happened in Hawaii in, uh, in 2018 where 38 minutes uh, the state was terrorized because they thought there was a nuclear attack uh, that was impending uh, on the island. And people were rushing home, calling loved ones, saying, you know, uh, I love you. Uh, it was great being alive, but uh, we're about to be obliterated because of the tensions that we were at that moment having with North Korea. I bring that up because what's important is recognizing one, as both Nina and David say, Going for total denuclearization is a pipe dream. Figuring out, however, how to manage the relationship and lower those tensions so that we don't have people running off the road in Maui and Oahu to avoid nuclear annihilation is going to be key. And so that, those, are, those are my points on the denuke. It seems to me one byproduct of the situation in North Korea is that the Japanese political rhetoric has changed and they're starting to rearm a bit which is a big, I mean, they've always kind of quietly been very pacifist, but fairly well armed. But, but now they seem to be moving. Is, is that true? Is that in America's interest? Because they're an ally? Are we worried about that? Because it just seems like the whole region is tooling up, so to speak. I think it is true that Japan is, um, is likely to soon breach the constitutional restriction on defense spending. Maybe not by proclaiming it and getting the constitution changed, but by finding accounting ways to do it. It's partly North Korea. Remember, it's been, I think, 10 years already since North Korea fired a missile over the Sea of Japan. And that in the Koizumi administration, you started to see Japan worried that the security dynamic of Asia was changing in important ways and Japan needed to change. But I do think it's China much more than North Korea that is driving Japan to do some really interesting and important cooperative work. For example, they are cascading Coast Guard ships and training Coast Guards in Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, the Philippines to help those countries better police their own fishing rights and territorial waters because China has grown so much more aggressive. And Japan's actually making a really smart, really interesting set of choices. They teamed up um, with Australia after 2010 when China cut off rare earth supplies to Japan over a fishing dispute. The Japanese uh, funded the opening of mines in Australia, are, uh, have a secure supply chains initiative. Japan's teamed up with India to try and create an alternative investment fund to the BRI. So the Japanese, it's not just a sort of rising militarism or a narrow defense strategy. Japan is actually making really smart, really creative, strategic choices about how to improve the defenses, not just of Japan, but of potential partners in Asia as well. It's good for us. The thing that I would caution against, though, is is too easily saying that there's an arms race or everybody's rearming, right? I mean, Japan has gone to $50 billion is what they're talking about now. I remember when Abe a couple of years ago was talking about rearming and they were going to like 16%. Even that was a pipe dream and they didn't get, they get about 3%. But $50 billion compared to uh, of Japanese defense spending um, versus like $250 billion for China, you know, we saw what Japan can do when it feels threatened a <laughs> hundred years ago, right? I mean, they are not responding as if their survival is threatened. They are, they are responding as if they need to help manage what's going on in the region. And the countries in the region are as well. There isn't a, a region-wide arms race. I say this simply because I've been looking at this data. I'm finishing, finishing a book. Um, but it's about 1.6% 1 in, 1 in East Asia of the average defense spending of these countries. It's really low, and it's lower from the Cold War. So these countries are, and, and as Corey said, it's, 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 it's uh, piracy, it's um, coast guards, it's fishing. It's a lot of stuff that the countries have to manage. 
And yeah, maybe Australia is going to get, again, we're going to get maybe eight submarines two decades from now. But the reality is these countries have not chosen to react the way that uh, they would if they were under threat. And I mean, this is an enduring theme. I mean, Trump was, you know, it's not just Trump who's trying to get allies to spend more, but it's Europe and East Asia. These countries are not spending what we think they should. And I think in some ways we ought to, we ought to ask, you know, maybe that maybe they know better than we do. I mean, I, I just just put that out there. Uh, the Taiwan Strait, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle in the press where, at least in the eyes of the reporters, I think it was a poster in New York Times, that Biden was kind of sending a firm version of that masterpiece of ambiguity, that temple of ambiguity, the one China policy. Well, some other signals out of the administration were a little more muted uh, as the Chinese have, have been uh, flexing some muscles in the direction of Taiwan. Uh, what do you think? Um, the what do you think the Biden administration ultimate strategy will be to deal with the PRC's increasing interest and in at least making rumbling noises about about Taiwan? Is same old stuff, is same old opera, or is, are there meaningful power shifts going on? I think President Biden actually doesn't know what his Taiwan policy is because this isn't the first time he has made a statement about the U.S. being obligated to the defense of Taiwan, which is actually not legally true. Taiwan is not an American ally. The Senate has not ratified a treaty committing to our defense of Taiwan. So it's technically inaccurate, um, but it is reflective of an increasingly a, a deepening commitment to the people of Taiwan as it becomes an ever more vibrant democracy and as China becomes ever more threatening to it. So um, do I think President Biden would actually go to war over Taiwan? Oh, I really hope we don't have to answer that question. And part of not answering that question is not being so provocative that, that China feels like it's looking at a closing window of opportunity in Taiwan. So here's the one time I'm going to disagree with Corey Shockey probably ever because she's always so good. But I think that uh, President Biden knows exactly what the policy is, and that policy is strategic ambiguity. And if ever there was ambiguity in terms of what's coming out of the White House and out of the Oval Office versus what our policies are, I think that's exactly it. Being able to say multiple things at the same time and suggest that they're all our policy is our policy. And by the way, it's being met by the Chinese as well. The PRC is also practicing its own uh, form of strategic ambiguity. One form is something that Kurt Campbell once talked about, which is they won't answer the, um, the hotline in Beijing when we uh, call it. It sits in a room, rings and it rings, and no one answers it. I'm, I'll give it perspective. I agree with both of what, both what you said. Um, let me give it from the sort of the, the, the Taiwan perspective or, or the Asia perspective. First of all, there's not going to be a war. China's not going to invade Taiwan. I mean, that discussion is ridiculous, right? That's not what's going on over there. There's a lot of signaling that's going on, but nobody's mobilizing for some kind of invasion. And the Taiwanese are not responding as if they were. What is going on, though, is that we are, if you compare the two real trouble spots in the region, North Korea and Taiwan, over the last 70 years, one has gotten a lot more stable than the other one. In Taiwan and China, compared to the 50s or even the 90s, you can travel more, there's investment, there's trade, there's all this stuff back and forth. And it's pretty clear that the long-term strategy uh, for China has been not deterrence, but interdependence. They're, you know, we're basically going to make it a moot point over, a, you know, over generations about whether Taiwan's independent or not. You can call yourself whatever you want, but you're going to trade so much with us that you're basically stuck. And that's so different from the Korean one, which is still basically only stable because of deterrence. And so the task is, can we keep the Taiwan issue more stable as opposed to getting less stable? And I, don't, I see it going a little bit in the other direction, but I don't see the, the signs right now as being China plans to invade. That's a lot of signaling as other countries make other claims in the region as well. So there's way much more signaling going on than I think that, uh, than, than we recognize. And you just sent me a uh, rather quaint telegram saying, yeah, what are you guys up to with India? It looks like there's more and more of an American focus, which has traditionally been very Pakistan-centric, particularly while we were in Afghanistan and the Pakistani regime has their own issues. 
But India is a growing major economic power, strategically extremely important in the region. Uh, seems like we've been paying more and more attention there. What do we think the Biden-India strategy is? And what do we think it should be as India tensions with the Chinese on border issues do seem to be going up as well? I think the United States has wanted a lot closer relationship and a lot more security cooperation from India than India has been willing to give it for a long time. I mean, that was the that was the point of the Bush administration, nuclear sharing or acknowledgement agreement with India, um, which I'd love to hear Nina's thoughts on the nonproliferation signaling of that. But the reason that there's so much more cooperation is because China's behavior is precipitating overt Indian alignment with Australia, Japan, and the United States. The quadrilateral cooperation between those four countries is is broadening and deepening because those four countries are really nervous about what China's doing, and not just militarily. I think it was really smart of the Biden administration to lead their first meeting with the Quad on vaccine uh, cooperation and distribution to send a signal to the countries of Asia that we're not just gunning up for dealing with China. We have creative, um, agile strategies that are going to address the actual problems Asian countries are worried about, as David said. I'm going to address the nuclear deal. So, you know, 15 years ago when it was signed, I was really worried about what the impact would be on nuclear nonproliferation by that deal. Um, And I thought it was really uh, not in the United States interest to recognize the nuclear power of, um, of India. But I think that what we've seen is that it hasn't had nearly as negative an impact on the nuclear nonproliferation deal as we thought it might. Um, there have been so many other stresses to nuclear nonproliferation that the U.S., India, the NSG, the Nuclear Suppliers Group, recognizing and allowing for sharing of technology with India, um, the one two three agreement for civil nuclear relations with um, the United States and, and India, all of that has not actually um, created as much instability for the regime as potentially all of the modernization of nuclear weapons that are going on by the nuclear weapon states. Um, and then I also think that in terms of the stronger relationship with India, it's really important, especially when you have to look at climate change, um, that the need for sustainable development and the United States playing a major role in terms of technology and investment in India, that that is so key. Um, and I mean, I might be not a usual uh, supporter, but I think nuclear has a place in this world, right? It may not be what most of the people in the climate change want to hear, but there's there's a role for nuclear energy that I think that we should emphasize more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on that. It's good politics if Biden does it right, too. It ought to be infrastructure, too. But, but go ahead, Marcos. Yeah, on India, if the Biden administration isn't trying to make them are, uh, have a special relationship the way we've uh, argued that we've got a special relationship with, with England all these years, I, I would argue within their halls that they better figure out how to make it a special relationship because it is the key to uh, how we uh, balance going forward in the future. Uh, I'd say that he's got two problems that are immediate. One is in a post-Afghan world, uh, how do we we, the states, deal with Pakistan and what is the relationship we have with Pakistan. It is, it is going to be determinative of how closely we can build that uh, friendship and relationship with India. And secondarily, he has a domestic problem. Uh, as Corey said earlier, you know, uh, pursuing a domestic agenda that is a foreign policy that also focuses on human rights and on diplomacy makes it very difficult within his own Democratic Party to build that special relationship with India, there's an awful lot of there are an awful lot of progressive forces within the Democratic Party that don't necessarily want to see that. Let's talk about cyber. The new kind of evil soft power is screwing around with other people's elections, and we of course had that experience here. Um, do we think we're going to see more of that? Uh, and I, my personal view is President Trump was far too soft, kitten swipes 
uh, at the Putin regime for what they did, uh, direct attack, in my view, on our democracy. Will Biden be tougher? What's Biden doing? And what ought he do if we see more and more of this election appearance, which on a global basis is totally growing? There's absolutely no, no doubt it's become a, a weapon of subterfuge in foreign policy by some regimes. What do we think? So I think the Biden administration is doing better than the Trump administration. And I'm especially impressed by the way they are handling it with the Russians. So they privately asked the Russians to arrest and hand over, and they provided the, the information justifying it. Um, s- some Russians associated with organized cyber attacks on the United States. Um, and uh, they're pushing back on a lot of these fronts to try and make cyber less the Wild West to demonstrate that we have the ability to add, to attribute attacks and a willingness to treat this as a law enforcement problem, even internationally, which strikes me as a really smart approach to it. And as we pursue this, you know, we have to recognize that the wars, the cyber wars that we've been fighting up until now are not going to be the same wars that we're fighting uh, next week. The technology continues to evolve and the ways to counter Uh, the measures that are coming from our adversaries are going to be much more complex. And just as an example, uh, you know, they're going to come from areas where we haven't yet really dealt with it. One being, for example, cryptocurrencies and fintech. How do, how do these new technologies, which have not yet matured to the degree that they will rapidly affect the United States standing when the dollar has been the reserve currency of the world? I think that there are multiple areas which we're not yet familiar with within the technological frame that are deployable both by nation states and by others who are non-nation state actors. That's a great point. Anybody else on this? Because I'm going to go to uh, the uh, always terrifying topic of nukes. I actually want to say that most of the really troubling aspects of election interference, especially from Russia, are really not a new technology. It's not cyber warfare, it's misinformation, right? And, and it's, it's destabilizing of democracy by encouraging the spreading of distrust and the spreading of um, disagreements and, and, um, and political divisiveness that Russia has gotten involved in for a really long time, longer than my lifetime, right? And so I don't know that it's cyber. That, I mean, cyber is a whole different issue in terms of where it's really a concern, but in terms of elections, the issue is information. Um, and, and then on, in terms of, of the issue of cryptocurrency, I mean, cryptocurrency has mostly the value of not being traceable. And that is really problematic when you combine that with organized crime and particularly cybercrime. Which gives treasuries all over the world an enormous incentive to start forcing regulation in that realm. And I hope we're going to see that regulation, right? Our libertarians, go, oh, it'll be a stateless currency. And I go, yeah, we'll see how that works out. Because every state agrees on one thing, no stateless currencies. All the enforcement tools go away and taxation tools and other things they care a lot about. Um, but crypto is going to be huge going forward. All right, nukes. So it's been interesting for at least, probably forever, but I've noticed there have been a lot of, it's kind of been a boom industry in Washington for the last two decades, nuclear reviews. The Schlesinger one, Obama did one, Biden's in the middle of one, and they tend to come back and say, you know, these things are all like eight-track recorders, they're old, we need a lot of money to modernize. Uh, so I was just going to start on that issue of how much continuity we've seen from the Bush administration to the Obama administration to the Trump administration to the Biden administration on nuclear modernization. Um, and so you're right. Mike, that, that you keep hearing these reviews and, and there's always a big hoopla around that, but there's not a lot of change of the policy. Um, it's been pretty consistent of investment and increasing investment in both developing new weapons, um, particularly the potential of having uh, low nuke weapons, right, which are really problematic in terms of proliferation because of the concern that they might actually be used. Um, but when you when you look at at the need to actually start producing plutonium again, right? It's we haven't produced produced plutonium since 1989, 
Um, and I mean, I know that it's an old issue to talk about the dead moribund um, fissile material cutoff treaty that never came about, but we really lose a lot when we start modernizing and really investing in new kinds of uses for nuclear weapons. So I think nuclear policy is the best place to remind people that it's actually Congress that runs defense budgets and policy in the United States, not the president. And in order for President Obama to get the votes in the Senate to ratify New START, he had to commit to a program of modernization that Republicans and even Democrats on the Armed Services Committees are going to force to conclusion because uh, they made a bargain. The second thing that I think argues for continuity um, is that, that, you know, the China report that the Pentagon just released and suggestive that China has changed its nuclear strategy from a minimum deterrent to something much more ambitious by dramatically increasing the size of its own nuclear force um, is, is not going to push us towards greater nuclear restraint or a break in the bargain about modernization. And the third thing is President Biden and his national security advisor would very much like to change America's declaratory nuclear policy. That is to go from saying, you know, our ultimate the ultimate deterrent of war against the United States is our recourse to winning it by using nuclear weapons to something that says their sole purpose it, or um, that we will only use them against nuclear armed states. And the problem with that is extended deterrence. You know, Secretary Austin went to the NATO defense ministers meeting and every single NATO ally objects to the U.S. changing its nuclear policy because they fear it will encourage conventional attacks on them. And so I think coming after President Biden's debacle in Afghanistan, it's going to be hard to push forward with a change to declaratory nuclear policy that makes all of NATO's, all of our NATO allies anxious and unhappy. Can I actually push you a little bit, Corey, on, on especially China um, and the degree to which China's increase vast increasing of its nuclear stockpile that it's announced and planned, um, and how much that is in relation to missile defense in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, thinking about this in somewhat traditional uh, arms control and arms races terms. Um, and so I think that it's particularly important to remember that when we think about what and as we were just talking about, the India-China relationship is and the degree to which China responding to the United States and, and really increasing its nuclear stockpile then creates real concerns for India. Um, and so I just wanted to, to, to see what you thought about that kind of traditional way of looking at, at the, the interaction between China and the United States. Oh, I think that's a really good point, Nina, and one I shouldn't have overlooked. Um, and there's more corroborating data on, on your side of the argument, which is China's conventional hypersonics, uh, the test from a couple of weeks ago, to demonstrate that they could get through U.S. missile defenses, even with conventional means. So, yes, I do think there's a, um, that our investment in missile defenses as pointless and expensive as that undertaking appears to be, given that you can simply overwhelm any defense of that kind, um, and given how provocative an attack on American territory would be, um, conventional or nuclear, um, you're right, they're connected. What I was going to just jump in with is that we're, all, yeah, that we're just dealing with uh, also a new form of deterrence policy because we have two new domains that haven't yet been tested in terms of the escalation ladder. One is the cyber component we discussed a bit, but also space. When you have uh, missiles that can go up, ASATs that can go up and take out satellites, or when you can do the types of things that are disruptive to a great degree, uh, to what degree uh, with an attack of that sort, if it is deemed an attack, 
when does the nuclear component jump in? And I don't think we have that cross-domain deterrence strategy. To kind of cap the, the nuclear question, uh, make you all make a, a guesstimate prediction. Five years from now, we're going to have more nuclear warheads or less. We used to have 12,000. Now we're down to 1,500. Good slope, but all you need is one to have trouble. What do you what do you think, Nina? I don't think that the question is how many nuclear weapons we have, right? I, I just I don't think that that's the most important question. I think it's what kinds of nuclear weapons we have and what we intend to use them for. Um, and so I think that Marcus's question about whether we're thinking about nuclear moving into space, um, even if it's just in a satellite um, area, that that's much more concerning than the actual number of nuclear weapons, because how many times do we actually have to be able to destroy the world? Well, let me tag you with one question. This idea of low-yield nuclears, which seemed to me to also be more usable nuclears, which begins an escalation ladder maybe more than you wanted to, is that being seriously considered? Do you think it'll happen? They'll show up in the arsenal or not? I do think that they're going to show up in the arsenal. I think that we are putting a lot of money into developing them, and we have been for more than 15 years. So I do think that we're going to have low-yield nuclear weapons, and I do think that that is very destabilizing. David, Marcos, anybody else on this? I second Nina's argument. Yes, it is very destabilizing. Yes, they are coming. And yes, there will be uh, new challenges to our deterrence policy. That is not uh, what we think it is today. You know, we've lived in this world that has oddly remained peaceful as a result of deterrence. But when you escape the, the framework of that deterrent policy, which is you know, major nations with nuclear weapons, and you enter into new domains for conflict, I think we're, we're really going to be um, struggling to figure out how to maintain the type of peace we've had and the type of stability that we've experienced, even with these weapons. I actually think that to some degree, the missile technology is much more important to look at than um, whether or not it's a nuclear tipped weapon. Um, and so I, I think that the, the real technological advancements and the spreading substantially farther than nuclear weapons of missile technology is much more um, an issue that we need to look at. You know, I'll come back in as the, as the area specialist, right? I truly don't understand the discourse over China. I truly don't understand. We have, what, 1,500 deployed nuclear weapons and like 5,000 total. And China for 50 years or so over that has had a minimum deterrent of what 150 200 warheads they say they might go to 400 which will still be 25 percent of what we do and we're all losing our minds and ripping our hair out the number i heard was a thousand dave so am i just wrong about that because when you go from i agree 400 yeah, it's not that much different a thousand now you're beginning to get in this in a similar realm and I'm still going to point out it's India more so that's going to get worse than the no, United No, that's what I mean, right? That, this is what I mean. Yes, the numbers may be going up, but I don't think they're the proliferation issue. I simply don't, I simply don't see how that's happening. That that will justify us doubling or something else? So let's say President Biden called up, great panel, tell Murphy to get off AOL, and said, all right, what steps to make a meaningful legacy impact on increasing global stability? which is always the goal, and it's so elusive and so difficult. What, what could an American president do that's not being discussed? This is time for the, the oddball ideas, the interesting contrarian uh, view. What advice would you give the president? Because um, right now he's kind of got a generic foreign policy. I'm not Trump. I'm going to kind of manage China, but I'm afraid to trade. You know, there's no real distinctive Biden foreign policy agenda yet. If he really wanted to, to hit big, uh, is there a strategy you ought to consider? Is there things not being talked about? This is kind of the wide open uh, closing question here. Uh, and uh, we'll to hear from you guys. Who wants to start? Sure, I'm, I'm willing to go. And, and since you want me to swing for the fences, I'm going to start with, um, I would suggest, uh, I'm sitting in the Oval Office and I'm looking him in the eye and I'm saying, Mr. President, uh, we've got 17 missionaries who are held hostage in Haiti right now. Um, they're being held by a gang of, of crazies who are uh, holding them for ransom uh, in a country where we've just a, a country that's in our region where the where the the leadership was killed. And um, 
and refugees are trying to enter the United States, get in there, get the refugees, destroy the gang. Do it tomorrow if you can. Get those contingency plans ready. I'm going to actually jump off what Marcos was uh, was saying, but I'm going to take it from a completely different perspective. Rather than really trying to get those gangs as the major kind of fundamentally changing uh, Biden administration plan, I would say it's sustainable development. Really get in there with a ton of money and really change the dynamics on the ground so that we don't have the numbers of asylum seekers. We don't have the numbers of people fleeing their countries. If you want stability, you have to do it in terms of development. Um, and so I think that that's really what we need to be talking about. Well, I won't say what I would do if I were king, right? But, you know, from a Biden perspective, I think that the threats from East Asia are far overhyped. I absolutely do. We're running around convincing ourselves of a China threat. We just take that for granted. And the reality is the countries in the region, as I said, are not spending because they're not planning to fight a war. The solution to East Asian stability is not going to be military. And we always lead with our chin. Phone ops operations and the army now wants to put stuff out there. And that is absolutely not going to be the solution. The solution is diplomatic and economic in the region. When people in the region wake up, when leaders and elites and people in the region wake up, they're not worried about invasion from China. They're worried about um, uh, immigration, piracy, fishing, uh, and these issues. And if the U.S. really wants to do something about East Asia, we need a strategy that's going to address those. And it's not going to be the military. After you clean stuff up and, and uh, create a Grenada type of event in Haiti and try and build that that uh, regime up, I think it would be indicative also of the region we need to pay much more attention to. And that region is our backyard, Latin America, the Caribbean basin. We have to recognize that while the war, while we had our unipolar moment at the beginning of this, of this millennium, uh, the great powers are challenging us regionally and that we have to recognize that uh, we don't have the type of power projection that we once had in these areas. So what should we do? Focus on home, of course, the home front, but also the home front in terms of what is important to us strategically in our own neighborhood. And then finally, I would say, Mr. President, um, you know, a lot of the people that you've known, that you've built relationships with for so many years are now at the end of their careers. Angela Merkel is basically now a caretaker. Uh, some of the other leadership that you've known for all these years and you've had a great relationship are on their way out. It's time to prepare your vice president to get out in the world, take advantage of her, of her uh, youth and her experiences and maybe even of her ethnicity. If, if India is really going to be the most important relationship we have to develop in the next few years, figure out how to use Kamala Harris, who comes from Indian extraction, to deploy her in this, in this area and, and really use her to build that relationship up. Elections in this country are seldom about foreign policy, unless you have a Vietnam War, unless you have a 9-11. Uh, how much do all of these complex challenges that Biden faces, how much impact will they have on 2022 and 2024. And we can just go around the horn, David. I agree. I don't think very much at all. Right? I mean, of the, of the region I know, even China might be a sort of elite issue, but I don't see this being a major motivating issue among uh, regular voters. Right? So I think this is very marginal. So I'm actually going to say that I think that there is one area where it really does hit home, and that is on our southern border which again is getting to the issue of destabilization in different regions and the degree to which people are fleeing um, and really trying to come not only to the United States, um, but to Europe. Um, and I think that that really can, and I think you've seen it, has in the past really affect domestic elections. And I'd say that, it, in fact, foreign policy has been the main driver of the presidential elections. You know, Barack Obama voted against, was opposed to the Iraq war and our intervention in the Middle East. Donald Trump said he was going to get us out of Afghanistan. And in fact, Joe Biden, too, promised that he was going to get us out of Afghanistan. He was the only one to do it. And so, uh, so I would agree with Nina on the border issue, that this is also a foreign policy issue, that one that is going to be key, it helped. Donald Trump win his election by promising a wall and keeping immigrants out. It's going to remain an issue going into 2024. 
And I think the thing that we don't know yet, the crisis that hasn't yet occurred, is going to be determinative and, uh, and be assured that something will happen come 2024. I want to thank our panelists, Dave, Nina, Marcos, and our valiant moderator, Mike Murphy, who never has these kinds of technical problems when he's on MSNBC. And I'm sure if he was on the 11th hour, they wouldn't know what, quite what to do. But I want to thank all of you. I want to thank you all. And thanks to the audience. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.